This month, we'll be talking about whether you should treat atrial fibrillation in the emergency department with anticoagulants. We've got five or six great cases. We also have emails, one from Michael Frank, the MDJD. We've got updates from the AMA, which had to do with the Zika virus. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's already February. Rick, I'm sure that means it's what, uh, 69 degrees, 70 degrees in Southern California. <laughs> you know, this is embarrassing. I just asked my lawn guys to go and come back this afternoon because I didn't want them to blowing in the lawnmowers, uh, making all that racket here. Yeah, before you bask in all your loveliness, be just before we got in the air, I noticed that uh, three escaped killers have just gotten out of the uh, Orange <laughs> County jail. Come on, Rick. With they used saws, they got in. Do, what do we do now? Do we ratch, wrap their lunches in floor plans to the Orange County Jail? How did they? How do they do these things? I it's, have no it's idea. It's pretty remarkable. Obviously, there is some concern about where they got the tools to go through these yeah. iron re- rebar. They've been out like about seven days now, and these guys are not uh, good good people. No, no. And they're concerned because it may be in the, you know, in the local Vietnamese community hiding out. But, you know, that's that's the way it goes. If you want to break out from someplace, it's good to break out in Southern California. Yeah, at least the weather's nice. Well, and listen, I hear I hear you got some good water back there, too. You know, yeah, yeah, we, I've been concerned got, about your lead levels for a while. Yeah, we, ac- we actually pumped that directly into the Wayne County Jail so that they, uh, they don't give us any trouble. Let me uh, start out with a few updates and things we ought to know about. This week in the New England Journal of Medicine, they published the first te- the past 10 years results from the National Practitioner Data Bank. And they had an interesting finding, Rick. That is 1% of all doctors account for 32% of all paid malpractice claims. Sort of the bottom line of that is for, for our list is if you have people who are generating claims, where there's smoke, there is fire. And we probably ought to pay attention to some of the high-risk doctors. You know, that's uh, really true. There's, I remember doing a paper in the abstracts that also looked at, does a current suit reflect the likelihood of a subsequent suit? And the, abs- and the, and the findings of that study were absolutely so you've got to really, really, really be careful if you're going to hire a physician who has been sued. Now, I know there's all kinds of excuses about why they might have been sued and it was unfair and and no suits are, are justified. They're all bogus. But the fact is the most common reason for malpractice suits is malpractice. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, everybody's going to get hit once, It, but it's not unreasonable to ask pertinent questions when you see that kind of problem. Second thing is, just to keep everybody up to date, the Zika virus, which is now went from Brazil, is now in 24 countries. I would put this out, and and, uh, this, this is from the AMA publication, which asks this question. Some experts say U.S. public health officials should be prepared for Zika. Now, I don't know how we prepare for Zika. The president the other night on TV says, well, we've got to come up with a vaccination. Good. 
that's that's five years, 10 years away. We still don't have an effective vaccine for a lot of diseases. But the one thing we should probably be concerned about in a in a risk management program is that when you ask about foreign travel, if some woman is pregnant, I would ask her to see her doctor if she has been in one of those 24 countries because uh, uh, the, the anencephaly problem or the microcephaly problem is one you would not want to be carrying around with you. So ask, do your usual screen on foreign travel, and I would refer them to somebody. This is where joint decision-making between a woman and her physician, I think, is going to be very important into the future. Yes, sir. Uh, listen, is it email time? Well, it's, it's not. It, we can start emails whenever you want, but I want I want two more updates. Oh, I didn't know we, that. Okay, go. Yeah, that I want I'm to be sorry. talking about. I'm saying I'm saying hello. This is a shout out to Ben Shamir, who uh, Ben is a listener and a friend. He's both here and in Israel, and there's going to be a conference in spring. I think it's May 21st, 2016, on emergency and disaster preparedness course in Israel. The reason I point this out is having been to Israel and been a visiting professor for them, they take this stuff seriously, Rick. Uh, this isn't the drills which we have at our hospital and everybody's angry at it and, and why did they interrupt our day sort of thing. If you're really interested and you do disaster preparedness for your hospital, I think this is something you ought to investigate because it's a very intense course. It's over five days. They're going to take you to all of their centers, even their underground hospital, that sort of thing. I, th I think those people view the world differently than us, Rick, and they take disaster preparedness seriously where, as you know, here in this country, we really don't. No, it's kind of viewed as a pain in the butt when they have these mandatory a joint commission uh, precipitated drills with the um, mock wounds and all of that. It's hard to really get into that, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it really is. One more update, and that is, as most of you remember, a lot of the discussions we've had on this program have dealt with not only physicians, but advanced practice providers. I did a piece about it two months ago in Emergency Physicians Monthly, and for the February issue, I've got an interview with a great guy who has put together, I think, a program of, of unbelievable quality to advance, advance practice providers through their department, not just over like weeks, but over a five-year period of time and, and giving them responsibility as they prove their, their uh, contact worth with, with patients. Please look at that piece. Because I think if you want to do some, some prophylaxis here, if you want to prevent problems in your own department when you're using advanced practice providers, take a look at this piece in EP Monthly because I think it has great suggestions to keep us out of court and out of trouble. Hey, is this the uh, piece by Bill Frona and uh, Jonathan Hansen? Yeah, I've That's got their, yeah, I've got their uh, letter here about the, w the way they go about it. Boy, you talk about taking supervision of physicians' assistants seriously. These guys do have a really, really nice plan that, you know, we both got the um, notification on this, but we obviously don't have time to go into the details of this here. 
but if you had, I didn't know that you'd inter- um, used this as um, the fodder for your column. You had nobody to, to, to um, complain about. Is that, is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, well, I had no, nothing to complain about that month. But I'll tell you what, he gave us a very candid discussion of how they do it, why they think they ought to do it, and, and uh, the fact that he's used this in defense of their practice mode and model. Yeah, let me just give a shout out to uh, where these guys are from. This is from what they call this um, MedStar Emergency Physicians and MedStar Franklin Square uh, Medical Center. They also acknowledge the help of Amanda Joy, who is their lead PA for education and training. They also, I have to acknowledge, Greg, that in this um, progressive tiered responsibility that they give their PAs, that before they really get into this, they send them to a quote-unquote boot camp course. Uh, (laughs) I just had to to mention that. Yeah, you're shameless. Any program that that would talk about the integration of PAs into the emergency department that doesn't include the boot camp course, man, I I just put it right in the trash can. Right, I understand that. And uh, again, listeners, I apologize for Rick and his blatant commercialism. But let's move on to some of our emails, Rick. All right. So the first one I've got is from uh, David Esler. David writes periodically. He's from Vancouver, where both you and I will be in about five days as we go up the hill to uh, Whistler for our for our course up there. Greg, you've never been there, I don't think. But the drive from Vancouver to uh, Whistler is called the Sea and the Sea to Sky Highway. Absolutely beautiful. So that alone will make this trip worthwhile for you, plus my company for five yes, days. <laughs> I understand that. Go ahead, Rick. In any case, he had a really interesting kind of a proposition. He says, what if you had some guy come to the emergency department with atrial fibrillation, you were able to slow him down by rate control without you haven't converted him or anything, just rate control, and uh, you want him to send uh, this person out from the emergency department, and you're going to send them to some follow-up doctor. And the question would be, here, here's the question. Is it appropriate to give that start that person in the emergency department on one of these novel oral anticoagulants, uh, you know, the Bradax and all that jazz, to, to start them on that in the emergency department, or rather wait till they go to the uh, follow-up doctor, whether it be a cardiologist or a family doctor, for them so- to start it after based on some discussion with uh, between the two of them. And the point that he brings out is that you are potentially exposing the patient to some risk if, in fact, they're, they are high risk for a clot, low risk for bleeding, and maybe their follow-up visit is going to be in two, three, four, five, six days, maybe, and, and that during that two, three, four, five, six days period, they are on no anticoagulant, and statistically, over time, somebody's going to get hurt because of that. So he takes the position, should not we initiate this treatment in the emergency department? And uh, he says, I acknowledge that that is not the standard of care, but It sounds to me like it makes a lot more medical sense. And from a trial point of view, he says, you know, to present to the jury that you let this person go uncovered with an anticoagulant for some indefinite time 
Would that that would seem to the jury to be kind of foolish when you could have given them the medicine, which is probably going to be the exact medicine that the family doctor or the cardiologist is going to give. So it's a question of standard of care, which is probably, you know, don't start in the emergency department, let somebody else start it, versus, you know, what would be considered, I think, better quality care. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that simple, Rick. If their atrial fib is due to mitral stenosis, no, this if is it's not due to not, well, but the the point is we have to ask some of these questions. It's not just that. Let's say grandma's ninety. Uh, do you think she has a greater fall risk than the average person? And now you've got to remember every one of the what what do we now call these things? The non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants, yeah, or well, the novel you know, anticoagulants. Grandma falls, hits her head, and bleeds. Have we done her any favors? Because, you know, we can't reverse a lot of those drugs yet. Well, there is the reversal agent for the, for the one. But his point of view, I think the assumption is, and now there are these, these, these scales or these, um, I, I don't know exactly what they call them, where you can determine the risk for a stroke and the risk for bleeding. So in the, in, the, in the case he proposes, the patient is at high risk for a stroke and low risk for bleeding so that they would qualify for medication. And this is non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And let's say, you know, it's a, a you know, 50, 60, 70-year-old person. They were probably likely are going to get the stuff. And in, those, in that case, what about starting it in the emergency department? Is that a, a good idea from a risk management point of view? I think from a risk management point of view, having somewhere on the chart that you've had this discussion with the patient, you've spoken to their doctor, yes, you've gotten input, you've arranged for them to be seen in the next day. I think all of those things are important. I, I'll just tell you the truth, Rick. I've never seen a case involving these medications. I, I haven't seen one published yet. I don't know what that means. But I will say this. With the direction things are going, Coumadin is going to be a long-lost long drug in five years. Nobody wants to have a drug where you've got to go in every two and three and four days and get your blood drawn to check uh, your levels of anticoagulation. I think the orals are coming. They're here to stay. We do need to have a policy about this. The intermediate may be to make sure that the patient's on aspirin or something like that. But the, uh, but the bottom line here is I think this is a spot for this uh, joint decision-making and involving their doctor. I think if you put those sorts of things on the chart, at least it shows you've thought about the issue involved. Well, you know, that's a weasel out. The uh, idea here is, yes, if you speak to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, I was going to put him on that anyway based on what you told me, then really it's a no-brainer. Then you can start the person. I think that where this got interesting was you were not able to talk to the doctor and you had to make an independent decision about the initiation of this medication. I, I think that even though that's a theoretical possibility, I think in most cases you'll be able to get a hold of the a physician that they're going to see for follow-up, and the two of you can agree or disagree about whether the medication should be started in the ER. I would hope, frankly, that the answer would be, yes, started in the ER, because that's what's going to happen based on 
the analysis of likelihood for stroke and likelihood for bleeding, which now can be done with some reasonable accuracy. Yeah, as long as you have the time and the information you need to make an intelligent decision about the drug, I agree with that. But, but I think that sometimes under the pressure of seeing 30 and 40 patients this shift, do we really have the time to sit down and go through things like we should? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I certainly haven't seen, uh, again, the cases to know how people are going to view this situation. No, I agree. And this was a theoretical kind of thing, standard of care versus better than standard of care. Right. Moving on. Yes. Let me give you one which uh, Jeff Anderson sends us. And I want, I want you to feel the, the exasperation here as he writes to us. He's talking to the guys, to, to us and says, you recently briefly touched on calling code head injury for patients at risk of bleeds. I find this, the concept of calling code XXX, whatever it is, an interesting and new concession to the practice of emergency medicine. Why are we doing this? My answer, we have become so distracted with the ever-increasing volume of patients in the ED, uh, filling out the charts, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have time to see emergencies. We are so pressured to make patients happy, get seen immediately, disposition quickly, that we now have to call code sepsis, code fall of risk, code blue, code stroke, code, code STEMI, uh, code, he says, you name it, just to get our attention that there's actually an emergency in the department. What do, we, what do you think about this? Have we gone too far with this code, this and that? Well, you know, this is, a, this is a frustrated doctor, that's for sure. I think that if you limited it to uh, the really super emergent cases, certainly Code Blue is, uh, I think, very legit. Don't you, don't, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, but we don't have to call anybody down for that. Nobody runs as many codes in an emergency department as we do. No, but I mean, uh, when it, that, that's an example. That's a code blue. Oh, well, you know, I, don't, I, I think it's perfectly fine to do that. And I don't think that there's, you know, maybe if there's a, a necessity for other people to come to the department and there, so there's some notification system that is required to get those people down there, like... If your hospital has a stroke team, that's fine. So you call code stroke or whatever it is. And if there's a trauma case where you have to notify people throughout the hospital, not just in the ER, that there's a trauma case, well, fine, you know, code trauma or whatever you call that. Having codes called within your department, exclusive to your department, gets a little wacky. I mean, if you had somebody with sepsis or something like that, and you're just notifying the the other doctors and nurses in your department, I think that is wacky. So, yeah, I think it's a little frustrating. But I think the real thing that's bothering this doctor is the non-truly emergent cases that they're being distracted with. And it's interesting because... There's a conference coming up. It is the Emergency Department Benchmarking Alliance Conference. It's called Innovations in Emergency Medicine. It's in Las Vegas. It's at the end of February. And uh, it's, a, it's a conference on how to run your emergency department and make it better. And uh, it, they, we, they hold it every year. We, we work with them on that conference. And I'm giving a talk in that conference that is just about what this doctor is concerned about. And... My pitch is, don't worry, don't worry. 
You, you don't have to worry. Oh, there's help uh, coming. There's all kinds of uh, opportunities to, to take away from you patients that you're having difficulty with in terms of uh, uh, too much volume. And they're called urgent care centers. They're called CVS nurse practitioners. They're, they're called freestanding or emergency uh, centers. They're called telemedicine. And all of these things are out there now more than willing to take care of the patients that you're just seem to be incapable of taking care of. These people who swim with the sharks are going to make a very nice living dealing with the patients that you cannot handle because you, your ER is not big enough. You don't have the mentality to, to understand that this is business. This is the only business that I know of that complains of having too much business. Right. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> and so these, you know, the little fish that swim with the sharks. Yeah. These little fish live in the droppings from the shark. Well, these, all of these other alternative places are living very nicely, thank you, on the droppings from the shark. Well, th thank you for referring to one of our listeners as shark shit. But uh, let, me, let me move on here for just a second and make another point. Three quarters of the hospitals in the United States don't have all these code groupings that come rushing down. That tends to be big hospitals, not small hospitals. Yes, I agree. S secondly, you should be aware of what the protocol is in your hospital. Because if there is a lawsuit, you want to make sure that that's written so there's physician judgment involved. Every kid who falls off their bike doesn't need to have a neurosurgeon down taking a look at them. That's just craziness. But you need to have the, the outs written in the various protocols so someone can't shove it under your nose and face and say, doctor, doesn't it say here you're supposed to call code head or code blue or code fall or whatever it is, there's got to be some physician judgment somewhere or, or we're no longer a profession. I mean, we have to be able to make some judgments. Wouldn't you agree, Rick? Yeah, uh, I, I agree. But I don't, I think this doctor's real frustration is not about the serious patients that, uh, who are being wrapped around this code calling business, but but the fact that he has all of these non-emergent patients to see. So don't worry, you know, there'll be a couple of freestanding emergency departments put across the street from you along with a few CVS stores and um, they'll just solve this problem for you. Okay, our next email is actually an epistle from our good friend. And you and I both know Mike Frank. And Mike is an MD, JD, uh, into everything, and a very, very compulsive, excellent reader and listener to Risk Management Magazine. He spanks us pretty good this month in his, in his email about our mistakes. So let me go through a few of them. And, and he's made some very good points here. Let, let me suggest that some of these are, are what Mike is dealing with are amplifications of stuff that we've said that uh, is maybe maybe not hitting the nail right on the head. And some of the stuff, frankly, I think it turned out to be wrong, but I don't think it was of a substantial consequence. But I honestly thank Michael for doing this periodically and keeping us on the straight and narrow because he is very, frankly, anal about these issues, and we run a little loose and sloppy and he's an attorney and we're not so i i appreciate his chiming in on this so 
Go down the list. Let me do a few of them. Mike writes, November 2015, Risk Management Monthly. Both of you railed at the uh, new reporting requirements in New Hampshire as if this was something new and horrible. You will remember, good listeners, that this had to do with you have to report yourself as soon as a lawsuit is filed, not after it's adjudicated. Well, he corrects us and at least says, you need to be aware that there are other states, not just New Hampshire, that require reporting of MedMail claims when first filed. Pennsylvania and Nevada have such requirements. Basically, what he's basically saying is, although New Hampshire has gone to this, lots of other people have this too. And he points out correctly that there are reasons for this. We need to have some database as to not just who got convicted or found guilty of malpractice, but how many times they were sued. And so he thinks that uh, we just need to be aware that it varies. And here's, here's a recurrent theme in Mike's letter. It varies state to state. You and I, we talked about the fact that uh, what if you have to report every misdemeanor and this, that, or another thing to the state with regards to your license. I inadvertently, in my over-enthusiasm, said, well, does that mean every minor traffic offense has to be reported? And he correctly points out the traffic offenses are divided into levels and groups. If you get uh, two points for for 20 miles over the limit, they treat that differently than if you have erratic behavior dangerous this that or that yeah he says that yeah some of this driving stuff is not considered a misdemeanor it's it's less than a misdemeanor it's a miss miss misdemeanor and and that those are not required to re- be reported because i th- i think that's kind of an, an example of uh his clarifying this and us making general generalities yes i think that's correct and he again reminds us that this varies from state to state So the best thing an emergency physician can do is be aware of the reporting statutes in his own state, know what the medical board requires in where you're practicing, and I think that's a pretty good idea. He also points out with some of our comments regarding writing prescriptions for narcotics for your family and and friends and that sort of thing, he points out that most states Uh, do frown on this and they don't want you a patient should at least be a patient you should have created an examination you should have a record that sort of thing but uh, again he points out correctly that it does vary from state to state and for those of you who are into reading the reports of your state medical board every month in the state of Michigan they publish uh, who's who's had their license removed? Oh, I, I look forward to getting. <laughs> I, I know you love that, Rick. Uh, and for what reasons? You know, they they fall into about a third, a third, a third. One third has to do with inappropriate behavior in some other way. You know, they they do have other crimes. They've been convicted of this or that. Uh, another, or they have inappropriately handled or touched or done something to a patient. The next group is, a, is however, related to, to narcotic medications. I can't tell you how many times each month somebody has had their license attached or suspended 
by the Board of Medicine because of complaints about narcotics. Yeah, talk about lack of a good faith examination of these patients. Uh, and, you know, you can, I've seen it where there's just been one case. You don't need like 10 or 20 or 100 cases to, to get these medical boards are surprisingly aggressive, I think, in terms of trying to keep the public safe. Yeah, so yeah, I understand what you're what you're talking about. And and so again, I think he he says this does vary from state to state. I've I've certainly given testimony to state boards in like state of New York, which is super aggressive. They're almost anti-doctor about this sort of thing. And then there are others, state of Montana, where <laughs> pretty much uh, doctors are left alone. Well, I, I think the thing that he was particularly clarifying is that it is not against the law necessarily to pres- prescribe to a relative. However, you do need a record and you need a good faith examination on anybody that you prescribe a medication for. However, that's not, although that is what people say, you know, people give give stuff out over the phone all the time and, you know, you can't do a physical over the phone and you're giving antibiotics for Johnny Zeray kind of thing, which you haven't even looked at. But uh, he, he does acknowledge every state, the medical society say this is a bad idea. AMA says it's a bad idea. Uh, it's so... Bottom line, it's think, a bad idea. But I do think there is a, a line to be drawn between bad ideas and you know committing a a, a crime in in the state that you live in. Yeah. Moving on. Uh, Mike did an excellent review of Tug Valley, pointing out that most of the people involved in this were primary care, some sort, family practice, internal medicine, yeah. and. He pointed out that <laughs> these really were sort of pill mill operations. Well, uh, yeah, Mike hasn't listened to our most recent tape where we basically, the whole point of it, it was to say this is not analogous to the routine practice of emergency medicine, and this is not a slippery slope. And I, I think that that was my point that I was trying to make when we talked about it last month. And I promise th- this will uh, we will not mention the word Tug Valley for the rest of our lives. Without inviting Mike to be involved in the discussion. No, uh, oh, no there's, there's also, uh, he also makes the very good point that this was a Supreme Court action in the state of West Virginia. What that basically means is they, they will, they, these will then be sent back to the lower courts. And he points out that it's, it'll be a cold day in hell when any of these 29 people, the addicts, will actually benefit financially from the crimes they committed or what went on. And I think he's probably right about that. We did not get into the finer points of that. But um, but I think that on our last tape, we did sort of clarify that this has nothing to do with uh, taking somebody who's never been there before and giving them 10 Vicodin tablets for their broken wrists. I mean, that's that's a, that, that what this is about. So, Mike, thank you for uh, for keeping Rick and I on the straight and narrow, and we look forward to further comments. Yeah, you know, I, I sincerely appreciate it. We don't know the law, and Mike Mike does, and he's having to be knowledgeable regarding all of the states where EMP has contracts, which is you know a lot. Yeah. All right. Let's now, do some cases. Well, let's do one thing before cases. 
we need some comic relief. Let's do our continued series on stupid comments people have made about why they're late to the department. Uh, one guy actually looked at me and said, do you ever get headaches? But number two, I had a late night last night. Again, not my problem. I got waylaid by a doctor in the hallway. Next, I just couldn't get started today. The last one for, for this month is the alarm didn't go off. You know what? None of that matters. Don't come in with an excuse. I think the real danger is this, and we haven't pointed this out enough. When you're late, it not only raises anger and frustration, but the quality of care of the pass-off, handing off a patient from one doctor to another, suffers. And when you look at my caseload, that's frequently where information is not passed along, which was probably would have been good uh, to make sure it was communicated down the line. It's uh, the world has changed. And uh, I just had an operation two days ago. My God, the number of times they confirmed which eye was going to have the cataract doubt was unbelievable. Oh, no, I thought it was a circumcision that you had. <laughs> That's listed as microsurgery, Rick. Uh, but but they did the, they, 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 there must have been five stages along the way where everybody confirmed everything. Uh, it's, it's not like the old days, I promise you. How you could ever do the wrong eye anymore is totally beyond me. I, it, it won't. Well, the other thing is most cataracts are bilateral. So, you know, it's, it's just we're going to get both eventually. Yeah, but when they go into the eye where you've already had the cataract. Oh, that's true. That's, that's not a good thing. Uh, it's, it, well, you're supposed to have a lens. Did you get a lens implanted there? Yes, I got, I've got one of those lovely lenses. And, of course, now it's stitchless. It's painless. It's hydromatic. It's all the phrases well, from I'm, I'm looking at you over the Skype here, and you're drinking Lipton uh, iced tea there. But I also noticed your eyes a little bit red. But it's quite remarkable that you had this extracted, uh, you know, two days ago. And here you are jabbering about medical legal things. Yeah, I, I don't know whether any of our listeners are old enough to remember when we actually put their heads in sandbags and kept them there after a cataract operation for two days, and they had stitches. I, no, no, the head was not in the sandbags. The, head, the sandbags were around the head. Around the head, yes. The, exactly. you know, maybe that's the way they did it in Michigan. Yeah, well, that's, where, that's what my mistake was. I, I shouldn't have put their head in the sandbag. All right, let's do some cases. All right, here you go. This is a 60-year-old male. I get some good cases here, uh, I must admit. You do have some great cases. So th this this is not one of the stronger ones, but it uh, I'm going to talk about it anyway. 60-year-old male complains to the ED nurse of abdominal pain that goes into his chest. It's 10 out of 10. The worst he's experienced, blood pressure 133 over 35, placed in a room 45 minutes after Stop. arrival. Stop. 133 over 35. Hey, I, I, I spit over that just because I wanted to speed over it. You're, you're not supposed to be pointing out the problems right off the get-go. Get so anyway, it puts in a room 45 minutes after arrival, blood pressure 135 over 45. The resident sees the patient 80 minutes after arrival, nearly three hours after his arrival in the ED. The decedent becomes extremely bradycardic and suffers an asystolic arrest. By then, an emergency CT scan was obtained, which showed a type 1, 
aortic dissection, which is you know the one that goes from the root of the heart up to the uh, apex of the uh, of the arch of the aorta. You mean a Stanford A as opposed to a Stanford B? Yes, P, the Bs are the you know from the top of the arch down. So this is basically the surgeon says yes. There's a clear cut dissection of the aorta, and ultimately the patient died. And now I've gotten a lot of these cases from lawyers, and so they the spin on them is from the lawyers who describe them, and so you you don't necessarily know all of the extenuating circumstances. But certainly the red flag here is, well, you know, ten out of ten chest and abdominal pain that should get you in, you know. That, that that would be a code something or other. And then this huge, huge, huge pulse pressure gap here of systolic 135, diastolic 45, that is not kosher. And um, it is kind of should be viewed as very suspicious and that people, you know, this is a, an example of a $1.5 million case that was in the ER too long was obviously underappreciated with regard to the seriousness of the problem, but there was a sign that that people should have kind of been aware of that would have suggested that we have a very serious problem here. I understand that, Rick, but there is there are going to be extenuating circumstances. If you believe that in busy ERs tonight there isn't going to be somebody who waited 80 minutes from arrival to being seen by the resident. A 10 out You're of just 10 chest wrong. and abdominal pain. People say 10 out of 10 all the time. I, I don't know what to do with that anymore. I think what's more significant is it's a 60-year-old guy with a blood pressure of 133 over 35. I mean, if you calculate out what the mean arterial pressure there is, that's not very good. But you know, whenever somebody said, oh, it has to be done immediately, you could say that about a lot of things. And I, I, we do get caught up in things and, and, and time goes by. It's, it's not easy. Here's the other point that time I was by. I have a third. Isn't that the song? From yeah, our, our, it, it, it is. It is as time goes by. But I think the thing to point out is if you're presenting blood pressure, uh, with, with your, um, if you figure out the mean arterial pressure is that low, your chances of living, getting off the table, less than 10%. Oh, that's why you can wait then. What, you know, this guy's got no chance of getting out of the department. All I'm saying, Rick, is this is not the guy with hypertension who's been there for five hours. This is a different risk group patient with the best people in the world waiting to take him upstairs to the operating room, his chances of being dead were very good, Rick. Greg, these are called vital signs. Mm-hmm. Vitas. You know, right. that's Latin. <laughs> yes, you right. Know, you know, <laughs> right. Yes, for, right. For life signs. These are life signs. Right. These numbers yeah. matter big time. And so, yeah, so patients, Sister Mary Teresa should be very proud that you remember your Latin, Rick. Yeah, that's uh, from uh, Pax Obiscum and uh, Ecum Spiritutuo. I was the first altar boy at St. Genevieve's Parish when they opened that parish, brand new parish. Perfect. And, um, I remember my Latin. God bless you, my and son. And as a matter of fact, I had Latin in high school for uh, two years. Yeah, of uh, course. Everybody did in those days. I actually had two years of Latin in college, but eh, nobody cares anymore. So this was a settlement for $1.5 million. Actually, 
when you look at some of the other cases we've got here, they got away pretty good, I think. Yeah, that, I, I, I was going to say the same thing. I would have anticipated a higher, higher settlement. Pick up number two there, Gregory. I will do this one, and, and I like this one. A, a 62-year-old woman fell off a ladder while doing some house cleaning. Pretty common. And, you know, 62-year-old women kind of look like girls to me now. I mean, <laughs> it's terrible when you've got to the point where you're lusting after 62-year-olds. Uh, she was taken to a local hospital, part of the Brigham and Women's Affiliate uh, system. Yeah, we, we have expunged some of the critical names of the doctors in these studies and in these cases, but we still had to want to have a little fun by naming the hospital. Oh, of course. She, she received a CT of her chest and pelvis. One rib, and I'm not sure how this happens, was fractured in such a manner that its tip was close to the heart. Now, I haven't seen the film, Rick. I, I don't know what this shows. But she was transferred based on this to the Mass General in anticipation of some procedure to stabilize the chest. It says two attendings examined this patient, but they did not order a, an X-ray at that moment in time. After all, they just she just had a CT scan of the chest, and the trauma team admitted her for late for treatment the next day of the fracture. The patient was monitored with the idea of ordering follow-up chest X-ray in the morning, and an epidural block was given for pain. Well, I'm glad they took care of the pain. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, the following morning, the patient coughed, and pr- and as part of this coughing. Uh, the aorta was pierced, and the patient died despite aortic clamping. What do you think, Rick? Well, you know, I, 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 have, a, I have a feeling that what they said in the beginning of the proximity of the uh, fracture to the heart is probably incorrect, but it was the proximity was to the aorta. And so what you're talking about there is a posterior rib fracture, very posterior Near right. the uh, you know near the uh, vertebral bodies and in the chest the aorta is just anterior to the uh, vertebral bodies, so I think that that was more likely what occurred here, and this one hospital that sent her was very you know we don't send chest we don't send people with broken ribs to the Massachusetts General Hospital for crying out loud. Well, we're not worthy. I mean, we don't have a right to do that, Rick. Obviously, they were quite concerned about the proximity of this fracture fragment to uh, probably the aorta. And w- what happened here is the doctors at Mass General didn't seem to kind of respond in what ultimately may have been an appropriate manner because she did the, the fear of the first hospital was actualized. Lady punctured. Died four point five million. Yeah. Well, I I think the uh, you know they started to try this case and uh, they were two weeks into trial when the the settlement so, was. Uh, so, is there a take home message for uh, a general a generality here that could be applied to our listeners? Well, I th- I think that the vast majority of rib fractures need nothing. If you have something which is to- which is misaligned posteriorly, it is serious. I think that the emergency docs at the first hospital did the right thing. They transferred this patient to the principal trauma hospital in the Boston area. Where else would you want to be? I would think that that's the right thing to do, wouldn't you, Rick? I mean, well, you know, I I think that if a patient is transferred to your 
tertiary center with a concern that there may be a potential for a puncture of the aorta that the physicians there would get on top of this to ascertain whether that was or was not the case. And I think there was this substantial delay here, which, yeah, we don't have all of all of the facts. There's no question. But, but you know, I think this delay uh, had resulted in this lady dying. Yeah, well, it's it, it certainly was not a good outcome. And uh, the it just is I'm sitting here thinking in most major hospital, university hospitals, trauma hospitals, they tend to overdo, not underdo. Uh, that's been my experience. Yeah, and I think they also think that the sending hospitals are basically pussies and, uh, you know, are overly chicken about uh, about stuff that they shouldn't be, you know, and they, they, they want to poo-poo the, uh, the judgment of the sending hospitals. I got wonderful advice as a junior medical student when we got a call at Wayne County General Hospital from a small outside hospital, and I said, yeah, it doesn't sound like much, and the attending said to me, he said, Take the case. He said, if that doctor thinks that it's he's over his head, he is. Both you and the patient get the benefit now. <laughs> After all, if you get to see somebody and they don't have a bad thing, well, you've learned a little something. If you do see a bad thing, you've helped out the patient. He was actually a smart guy. He, he almost never said no took a look at these people. He says, we can put a lot of them through here. He says, I want to catch the one that needs to go to the operating room. I think that's probably right. Hey, boy, you want to talk about a case. Let me tell you about case number three here. You'll love this one. Yeah, I know. The, the ambulance was called for an obtunded insulin-dependent diabetic. He was administered glucagon and glucopaste, never heard of that, for emergency by the emergency medicine technicians. His initial blood sugar was 74 by the time he arrived in the ER of Temple University Hospital at 9.10 p.m. Isn't that your old hospital, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, and I don't want to name any names here. I know that. At 10.40, blood sugar was 79, and at 12.14 in the morning, it was 118. The patient was discharged at 105 in the morning, and the company of family members and went to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. Patients were able to find him unresponsive at 11 o'clock in the morning. According to the defense pretrial memorandum, the patient also had a history of schizophrenia, depression, pancreatitis, and alcohol abuse. The patient, catch this, had been brought to the hospital 11 times for high or low blood sugar levels in the prior five years. Oh, and uh, one of the issues was that he was non-compliant with taking his insulin, the defense argued. So the patient is now labeled non-compliant. And how many times have you used that in some kind of disparaging manner that this is a non-compliant patient, won't listen to you, won't take their medicines, but, but non-compliance, there's all degrees of non-compliance. Well, of course. And, and what happens is we get into this med medical thinking that says, well, if they're non-compliant, they deserve to die. <laughs> and, we, and we really shouldn't do that. Anyway, the, the jury found him 10% at fault for the metabolic encephalopathy that he was left with. And there was associated severe brain damage and he needed constant custodial care. Stop, Rick. The guy before this event is pancreatitis, an alcoholic, a diabetic. I'm willing to bet he was not your average good citizen 
the day that this thing happened. Now, uh, agnostic brain damage is not a good thing, but understand, uh, it's not like you've taken somebody who is uh, president of General Motors and just made them a wheelchair case. Well, based on the settlement for this case, you were dealing with the president with General Motors. Or more. <laughs> so the, one of the questions is, why was it only 10% liability for this condition when other people thought it was, should have been substantially higher than 10%? Yeah, so uh, we crossed into a new area here, Rick. Whenever you're talking about percentage of fault, that's a jury decision. Whenever you talk about the total amount of money, there's no logical way, I don't think, to discuss some of these decisions because how can you logically come up with the number that in particularly in this case, which is unbelievable? Yeah, the, the, there was an award and they said an award that seems likely to exceed his medical needs occurred. And so how does that happen? So one of the lawyers in this case says the way that happens is it's where both facts win cases and outrage a jury. And when you get a jury pissed off, then they start looking at uh, some serious awards here. Well, we got to tell them the fact that made the jury go crazy. Yeah, the plaintiff attorney argued to the jury that because the patient had been there two days ago, that they had some obligation to find out why this person's blood sugar level was so unstable and that that was a breach of the standard of care. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, I can understand that. However, it gets worse. The emergency doctors differed on whether one of them treated the patient. Well, he actually filed a motion of non-involvement. Yes, and so this is he, he did not he did not take part in the care of this patient. Well, now the emergency doctors are arguing between themselves who actually saw this patient and was responsible for the care of this patient, which is viewed as all three of these doctors involved worked for Temple University Hospital. To have one of them get a, a, a thing that says, no, 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 I wasn't involved. It's like, how, how could they allow the doctor to do this? See, fighting amongst yourselves is one thing. Fighting in court with motions <laughs> is, is never by yourself. Everybody gets to see that, Rick. And this was just a disaster. And Philadelphia is like at the level of Chicago when it comes to uh, awards. This can be very, very tough territory for doctors. Yeah, you know, and actually, Greg, it's interesting. You pointed out that there's often frustration with these noncompliant patients, and the, you read the letter from the doctor who was concerned about too many non-emergency cases going into the emergency department. And in the analysis of the case, they wrote that – you know, people work in the emergency department can get very frustrated with all kinds of these societal issues where there's alcoholics and homeless and all kinds of things like that. And so that this patient might have gotten short shrift of being sent out by them, you know, because they're just tired of seeing them. And it was just one more kind of pain in the butt. And so they said, it's only human that you, this may occur. And, the, and they said, there's a problem with that, Rick. Uh, yes. Only human is not the standard of care. That's, yeah, that's, that was the point they were making. Only human will not get you anywhere in court. Yes, um, it is. 
I agree. The amount. $21.4 million. $21.4 million. That's uh Now, it, we, we, we don't know whether these get adjusted downwards or... The, the, but <laughs> I'm impressed. $21.4. That's, that's pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the take-home from this is, if you guys have differences of opinion, keep them to yourself or at least try and resolve something... Because the last thing you need is to throw fire uh, or gasoline on this fire of the lawsuit. All the plaintiff has to do is sit back and add a zero or two. And I, I, I would have loved to heard his closing argument because well, I'm sure he, he made that show that this guy had been uh, treated like a bum and uh, was not given standard medical care. Well, that's exactly right, Greg. Plaintiff attorney felt the jury was angry. And that was his goal. He, he wanted to get the jury angry about how this person received short shrift when it would seem to the layman that if he was there two days ago and there he's there again, you just can't be sending him out the door. And obviously there were people testifying that they, he was not observed long enough. He was not given enough food, those kinds of things, to bring his blood sugar up to a, high, a, a constantly higher level. And... The coup de grace was the physicians arguing over the, uh, between themselves, and that just kind of made it all the worse. Yeah, no, I can I can see the plaintiff uh, attorney just licking his lips at uh, at that. That would just be that would just be icing on the cake. All right, case number four. The patient in this case is an armed guard at a federal building. If you haven't been to Washington D.C., they all have these automatic gates that come up. From the ground. Yeah, in the driveway. In the driveway to stop uh, terrorist attacks. Well, he's crossing a barrier across one of these driveways, and for some reason, a co worker <laughs> activates the barrier. It hoisted him into the. I mean, you'd like to think there's an alarm that sounds or something like this. Anyway, it hoisted him into the air, twisted his knee, and it, the knee got caught in the elevated barrier. According to the patient's attorney, he dislocated his knee, tearing almost every ligament and tendon. It reduced uh, before he arrived at the emergency department. This ER visit was only about two hours. His ER visit was only about two hours long, where he had a series of x-rays as the only intervention. While he was there, the PA suspected a knee dislocation but never told her supervising doctor. Now stop. The last time I checked, a knee dislocation is actually relatively rare and is hugely debilitating. I mean, these things are, are awful. Uh, he was discharged home as a knee sprain. Two days later, he returned to the ER with no pulses in his foot, and he ended up with an above-the-knee amputation. Is there anything good here so far, Rick? I mean, I'm... No, you know, but I was trying to... Uh, you and I have heard of need this locations that self-relocate. We That's not an uh, unusual phenomenon. And we also have heard of people who have had distal pulses when they still had a popliteal artery injury. So the question is, is... What is the approach to this patient? Do they all get some kind of Doppler to check out their their popliteal? Because they, you know, 
This knee is back in place. You don't know that this knee was uh, dislocated. In, in all fairness, if someone had mentioned that it relocated, then you've got to assume it was yeah, dislocated. But no, that didn't happen. And the, the, the PA in this case, who was, if this is the case I'm thinking about, the PA was the only one to see this patient. Is this correct or Yes, no. yeah, but the attending was not brought in. But while while this patient is in the department, even if I've never seen a dislocated knee that wasn't massively swollen, number one. Absolutely. And that I've was never the, seen it. Yeah, I'm, that was the part I was going to make. These patients have huge hemarthroses, huge hemarthroses. And, it, and I believe... That anybody who comes in with a hemarthrosis in the setting of acute injury, we know for a fact that they have substantial internal derangements of their knees. Stuff, all kinds of stuff has been ripped, broken, twi twisted off, that kind of thing. And I think that these patients. Can I quote you on that, by the way, Rick? It's obvious you ha have complete command of all the orthopedics involved here, but you're right. <laughs> They've ripped the hell out of it, and you don't know for sure. Well, yes, but but these are not, yes, the people will get a plain x-ray. A plain x-ray in these cases is totally worthless. What what you need is an MRI. And, the, and I personally believe that these MRIs should be taken right then and there, not having this person put in a knee immobilizer and sent to the orthopedist God knows when down, down the, the next week. These people have substantial, serious, serious injury to their uh, to their knee, and that seat MRI machine is right down there, and I'm going to put that person in that machine. It's not a f big freaking deal like we th seem to think it is. So, well, they I, said some. I think that the physician's assistant and the ER doc breached the standard of care, failing to rule out. You know, when you got a knee that big and that ripped up, and he, this isn't a sprain. It's not like with a pair of crutches, he's fine. One in three knee dislocations results in injury to the popliteal artery. And the other thing is, if you don't catch it within the first uh, six to eight hours, they have a 90% amputation rate. Because what they get is they get, you know, as the thing pulls apart, it gets a slow dissection inside that uh, knee. In this case, having a quick trip through the emergency department was maybe a bad thing. If, they, if, if they'd had to be there for a few more hours, they probably would have seen one of the other five or six signs of, of ischemia because these people are in severe pain. I, I don't know how you confuse this one because I think these people look incredibly injured. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. I, now, I, I have seen patients who have come in with lar large hemarthroses with, due to a twisting injury of the knee. There's... there's no fracture. There is, you know, an ant. You know, the deadly triad. It, there's, there are some ruptured ligaments, but there's no, there's no dislocation. How you pick up a dislocation when it's relocated, and, and this is like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. They had a pulse, distal pulse. The, the knee was re relocated, kind of thing. I guess what it basically says is that you really have to have a low threshold for getting an evaluation of the popliteal artery when there are 
when there's the possibility. But I can see myself making a mistake here. I really can. Well, one problem is the physician assistant uh, in her deposition or the deposition given said it was in the differential, but she had ruled it out when the x-rays came back normal. Now, what the heck is she talking about? Well, see, that's the point. That's just plain bad science because it doesn't rule out anything. And so uh, things, things uh, dislocate and relocate, and it's not good. I think the, I think the physician also said that, said that, yeah, we probably should have done this or that in any way. They, they pretty much were not convincing uh, through their depositions as to what was going to happen. This eventually did go to a uh, trial. And the bottom line is it's a $5.2 million decision, and $3.7 million of that was for pain and suffering. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is a tough one for us to defend as physicians. Because you don't see many knees hurt this badly no, in your true. practice. I, I, I guess maybe take... I saw one or two, I, maybe every five years. I'd see a few of them hurt this badly, but you know, they, they aren't good. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. Case five. This is from the Texas Tribune, which is a newspaper down there. It's from the December 15, 2010 issue. 54-year-old female with a past history of DVT and a venal cave of filter presents to a Texas ED in 2010. Some tests were performed. It's not specified which ones. And the patient was discharged with a diagnosis of bilateral leg, leg pain. Well, first of all, that's obviously not a diagnosis. That, that's a restatement of the, of the patient's symptoms. It's a complaint, not a diagnosis, right? Three days later, delusional and with legs of the kind of the color of red wine, the patient called 911 and was transported to a different area hospital, obviously a better hospital. This time, doctors determined that the patient's vena cava filter was severely clotted and had led to tissue death in her legs and kidney failure. When she regained consciousness weeks later, the patient could hardly handle her new reality. Doctors had amputated both of her legs to save her life. She was told by multiple attorneys that she had a great case, but not in Texas. Tort reform in Texas in 2003 made it particularly difficult to successfully sue ED providers, with the crux of the problem being the change of Standard this, of care. Th- th- this is the elevation from plain standard of care to willful and wanton. Which basically means that you have to actually actively be out there trying to harm the patient. Almost. The lady said, we've lost all of our savings. I can't do anything in, on my own. It's ruined all of our lives, but we have no legal recourse. Well, you know, obviously from a medical point of view, it sounds like the... Doctors really didn't take very seriously her prior history of DVT, and I would have loved to have known whether the te- what tests were done. If an ultrasound of the legs was done, you know, ultrasound of the legs with the proximal clots is really, really, really a good test. So I don't know whether that would have um, made any difference here. But uh, anyway, we always talk about the awards that occur in these cases. Well, here's a case that seems like it was pretty legit. No, no award. Gregory, I think we have time for... I got one more case here. Yeah, I think we have time for one more case. All right. An active single mother, 
stepped in a hole of some kind, twisted her ankle while walking in her yard. She saw her foot dangling off of her leg. Uh, this is a quote. X-rays in Edar found her ankle to be fractured in three places. I That, as I remember, was a trimalleolar fracture. That means everything holding your bones together there is shot. Is shot. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, she spent four hours in the fast track. Well, can I just add one other thing? So, yes, the uh, so she had the three-bone three, three fracture, and uh, it was also said that uh, the bones were severely dislocated. Yeah, I, 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 when you, when that comes back from the X-ray department, it, you know they didn't, they don't say clinical correlation required here. They just said this is it. They're dislocated. She spent four hours in the fast track, was never seen by a physician, or had an orthopedist consulted. Now, this is not a good. This is not good. The <laughs> last is, time I is... remember, trimalleolar fractures are going to require surgical intervention. I, I guess I've never seen one that didn't. This is not this is not good so far. The patient saw an ortho the next day, but the swelling was so bad, surgery could not be done. And I'm sure he let the patient know that. After 13 days of elevation, they got the swelling down. Surgery took place despite a large amount of swelling. There were multiple complications, five subsequent surgeries. Now she uses a cane and has due to pain from this resulting arthritis is only able to work about 15 hours a week. Before we get any further into this, my understanding from most of the orthopedic surgeons is if you have a trimalleolar fracture, you never walk normally again. You, they well, cannot put it together such that you do not well, have that, at that least may some be, pain. But the question here is what portions of the patient's care may have contributed uh, to that because, you know, the patient was given a splint and advised for the orthopedic follow-up by the PA. So, right. so a knee splint, which is, they were a pain in the butt in the first place. You get a knee splint, x-rays, never seen by a doctor, and this is a fast-track patient. No, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I'm not sure who was triaging or when you have three major fractures and dislocation, why that patient would be maintained in the fast track. Well, can you I mean, imagine what that ankle looks like? Yes. Oh, no, my God. It's got to be unbelievable. In any event, they thought that this, apparently they thought that this was reasonably safe to send the patient home. It's interesting that they didn't even call the orthopedist to set up well, the well, visit. Obviously, the, the PA didn't understand the significance of this injury. Well, I, I, I guess maybe they'd never seen one before. That isn't listed as, as part of this, the information on this case. But it's interesting that the results of a two-week trial were the patient lost. The patient subsequently had a confidential settlement with the hospital. Right, because this is Texas. Yes, where, well, the, where the rules of wanton and negligent, wanton and willful and wanton apply to the doctors, but not the hospital. Right. So somehow she went after the hospital, probably because the, well, maybe the PA, maybe the PA was an employee of the hospital, but if it was the PA, the, uh, it was the employee of the group, physician group, that's another story. Right. I understand that. 
A study at the University of Texas, by the way, noted that between 2003 and 2007, malpractice claims dropped by 60%. Now, I'm not sure whether that's just emergency no, medicine. No, that's across the board. That's across the board. And payouts per claim are down about a third for all physicians. And so I think that I think that if you wanted a, a, a fairer playing field, docs, I think in Texas right now, you've got as fair a playing field as you're going to get from your fellow citizens. Well, I think the point that these papers make is the patients who are got harmed really had no fair resolution through the legal system. And so, you know, we normally have cases where the, there's malpractice, there's settlements or not settlements. Here are examples of patients who should have gotten some kind of settlements in all likelihood, but because of the standard now in Texas, it's virtually impossible to nail an ER doctor. Well, it's certainly it's certainly tougher. I'll I'll agree with that. And there, there's got to be some balance here. I mean, if I presented those two cases where there was no harm found against the physicians to a room full of 500 emergency docs at one of our conferences, you know what? They would, they would have awarded them some money. They would have. Yeah. I think, I think that's the point I wanted to make with these last two cases. Gregory, we are just about out of time, my friend. So do you have a, yeah, I do a, a fruit of the month, wine of the month, wine of the month. I, you know, I know, I know everybody wants to have a million-dollar wine for two bucks, but I found the compromise. And one of them I had never tried before, and that's Hess, H-E-S-S, Select. Their 2014 Sauvignon Blanc, this is Northern California, 11 bucks a bottle. And, and the wine advocate says, this is a decent buy. Now, the one I really want to tell you about is the Hess Select 2013 Cabernet Sauvignon Shirt Tail Ranches. This is a this has actually got a review that says an attractive value, good to drink over the next few years. Buy it, and this is fourteen bucks a bottle. Rick, they said, you know, you can't compare this to the two hundred and fifty dollar a bottle Plump Jack and all that sort of thing. But I hope I've now found the price range where you can be a happy camper. Yeah, now exactly. We're, now, now we're down at the price of La Crema you know, at Costco. So, I mean, now we've got a wine that, that even our most destitute physicians can enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Gregory. For the month of February, this is Greg. And this is Rick. We're signing off. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Oh, my God.